0: A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and this is A Mucky Business. Welcome to the show where we take a look at politics from a Christian perspective. Is politics tainted by compromise and sin? Yes, of course. But then again, so is everything else in our fallen world. and So I don't think that Christians should steer clear. Instead, I want to encourage Christians to seek to look at politics through a biblical lens, to participate where appropriate and always to pray in an informed way, especially for those Christians who serve in the mucky business of politics. Today, we're going to be hearing from Baroness Caroline Cox, someone who spent almost 40 years serving in the House of Lords. She is a fierce human rights campaigner. She's lobbied on behalf of persecuted Christians right around the world. And she set up the Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust as a way of tackling injustices around the globe. We'll hear how she went from working as a nurse to coming into the House of Lords and then sitting down with controversial world leaders and trying to fight for the rights of those most persecuted. But before we get to do that, I want to talk about the issue that everyone's talking about. As Advent begins, the excitement is building already towards Christmas Day. We don't know the exact date that Jesus was born, but we do know that the first Christmas was a historical event that happened at a specific time. We also know that Jesus will come again. Only the Father knows when, but there can be no doubt that this too is a fixed event in time. We look forward to many things in life that are less secure. The new COVID variant Omicron highlights again that all our earthly plans are at the mercy of God. James 4 reminds us, now listen you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while but then vanishes. See, I feel like James 4 hovers all over the Covid pandemic. It was like a timely rebuke to me again this week. I'm looking forward to Christmas, to time with family, time off work, a festive visit to watch Blackburn Rovers, each their own, I hear you say. With the emergence of this new variant, many will now feel despair, though. Is Omicron more infectious, more likely to get around vaccine protection? Just yet, we don't know, but the newspaper headlines are already shouting about the need to save Christmas. Well, how should we as Christians respond? Perhaps we avidly follow what scientists say. Perhaps we feel out of control. Maybe we have even already thrown our face masks away. Probably we're just simply weary of the whole thing. Something that can disillusion Christians is that we can hold God to promises he has never actually made. We then feel disappointed or crushed when those promises aren't fulfilled. But he didn't promise us a cozy Christmas. He didn't promise us a summer holiday. He didn't promise us that we could make plans and that all would go swimmingly. No, in fact, he promised trouble. In John 16, Jesus tells us in this world, you will have trouble. But wait for what he says next. But take heart, I have overcome the world. What a claim. You can't let that pass you by. We are waiting to see if Omicron will disrupt our plans. But in Advent, we are waiting for the incarnation of God in human form and for his return. Jesus has been born, he has died for our sins, he will come again and he will redeem all who trust in him. These are the promises that God has made. You can have complete security and certainty in that future. When we're in a boat, in a storm, remember that he is in the boat with us. At Christmas, remember Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray for peace instead of fear. But trusting God doesn't mean ignoring the virus. If we're gonna take God at his word, then we must love our neighbor. That means being responsible towards others, wearing a mask, getting the vaccine, following basic hygiene rules. A friend of mine, younger even than me, has only just come off a ventilator, having spent two weeks in hospital with COVID. This thing has not gone away and we need to show love for our neighbors by protecting them from it. We also need to pray for grace to respond to those who disagree with us. After nearly two years of COVID, there seem to be an alarming number of people holding COVID-sceptic or anti-vaccine views who say they're Christians. But we must remember that we should love the truth and not propagate untruths or half-truths that could cost people their lives. Recently, Lord Paul Boteng was our guest on this show. He spoke passionately about the health needs of people in developing countries and the great risk to us all when only a small minority of people in those countries have been vaccinated. Without vaccination, he warned, the virus stands a far greater chance of mutating into new strains. Paul's been proven right, hasn't he? Omicron seems to have evolved for that very reason. The Bible tells us that perfect love drives out fear. Maybe the best way for us to deal with the fear and uncertainty of Omicron is to rest on our security in Christ, and to turn outwards in love towards our neighbors, keeping them safe by mask wearing, getting vaccinated, meeting their needs, And pressing for our government to share vaccine with those countries much poorer than our own. A mucky business with Tim Farron. So to our guest, Baroness Caroline Cox, a long-serving member of the House of Lords. Thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure and a privilege. The privilege is all mine. and, And so let's start off with, let's be honest, the really most important question, which is about your faith. Um, It's clearly been a huge part of of your life and career. Um, Take us back to the moment that you would say that you became a Christian.
1: I was very fortunate being brought up in a Christian family. So it was there all the time. I had my confirmation when I was aged 11. And I still remember the confirmation text to this day. Have I not commanded you be strong and of a good courage? Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. for I, the Lord your God, am with you wherever you go. So I hang on to that. And that has been a guiding light.
0: Amazingly powerful and great great words for us all to, to cling on to. I mean, um, you, uh, I'm fast forwarding quite some distance now, but you end up in a career in nursing. Was that something that you aspired to do from a very young age? And what kind of nursing did you find yourself in?
1: Well, I always wanted to be a nurse from a very young age. The school wasn't the least bit pleased with me because they wanted me to go to Oxbridge, But uh, I'd gone to nursing, I never regret it. It's a wonderful profession. And I qualified as a nurse, and then I worked as a staff nurse. And then I had six months with the best nursing education as a patient in Etihad General Hospital with TB of the kidney, which also knocked me out of clinical nursing for the time. So then I did other things.
0: So tell me about the other things.
1: Well, when I was nursing, I was very conscious of the fact that a lot of the time, uh, patients, I'm talking about a long time ago, 84, so it's a long time ago, but I'm talking about uh, they were p- patients were just treated as coronary in the num- bed number six or something mm-hmm. like that, and I really wanted to bring the human dimension into mm-hmm. nursing, so I studied sociology um, as an external student of University of North London for five years, um, and it really gave me a lot of insights, and eventually I wrote a book about sociology for nurses, Midwives and Health Visitors, which brought together in a readable way uh, sociological theories and then how they applied to particular kinds of patients like care of the elderly or the dying. And it was published in Swedish as well. So I think people found it helpful.
0: Wonderful. Now, all of this implies an interest in um, the, the wider aspects of society and not only nursing or how nursing fits in with the wider aspects of society. Even so, it's quite a, a leap to the House of Lords. Tell us how that happened.
1: Well, it's a bit of a jump between the, well, being a nurse and being in the House of Lords. Um, I, After I got my degree, I then wanted to teach and I found myself a Polytechnic of North London, came mm-hmm. Head of the Department very quickly because I'd landed at first in my degree. And uh, I couldn't believe it, Head of the Department of Sociology, 16 of the staff of 20 were Communist Party or further left. <laughs> and. What was happening there was absolutely appalling for the students and appalling for truth. And uh, I just had to resist it. I just give you one quick example. Uh, there was going to be a new director appointed and all oh, the crowds, they were really violent, vicious crowds. They were shouting racist, fascist. Well, I knew he was neither. He'd fought at the Battle of Arnhem and mm. fighting Nazism and seeing many of his friends killed. In Northern Odisha, he was nearly kicked out for helping black students. So it was all premised on lies. Mm. And the teaching of the students was very, very biased as were the results and so on. Mm. And eventually I thought this is only happening in the Polytechnic of North London, I need to write a book about it. And with two colleagues, one from a history and one from mathematics, um, we wrote a book called The Rape of Reason, The Corruption of the Polytechnic of North London. And I was a bit nervous going back to face the music But Mm. the day before the book was to be published, I was getting kids ready for school and my late husband called up and said, Bernard Levin is on the phone. Now that name will not mean much to the younger generation. He was a very well-respected writer and had three uh, op-ed pieces in the Times every week. Mm. And I was getting kids ready for school and he phoned me, I'd never spoken to him. He said, I've just read your book. I think it's the most important book for the future of democracy. I've read for the last 10 years and get to cover it in tomorrow's times. What a relief. But then at the end, he said, and I think this is such an important book, I'm going to devote my remaining two articles this week to discussing it. So he gave us a trilogy, which he'd only given before to Mozart and Solzhenitsyn. So we're in good company.
0: Very, very good company. Uh, so you, and then you're about an era that I, I know relatively well from having been involved in student politics. And uh, when people... Um, I think a lot of the debate about, you know, wokery wo- and political correctness is often um, inflated and there's a lot more uh, reason to that re- uh, it entailed than perhaps is put aside. But it's not new, is it? Um, and, uh, and so we... have has
1: perhaps... been sown and nurtured very, very powerfully in those days. And I just felt so sorry for the students. They suffered so much. I mm. haven't got time. I'll send you, if anyone wants to see it, a Burn Levins three articles. and i well, will be grateful. Very good summary.
0: I I always think that what we haven't got yet um, is um, so if you go back to the 1980s and the political correct movement is that if you look at things like, I hate to say this, the young ones, there was nevertheless, the people who were politically correct had the ability to laugh at themselves. And we haven't got there yet in the current era, it feels like. Um, But either way, Caroline, that is absolutely fascinating. Now, nevertheless, at some point, you get the call to be in the House of Lords. So how soon after all that?
1: Well, it was just fairly soon after that. And I always say when I introduce myself, I'm a nurse and a social scientist by intention and a baroness by astonishment. <laughs> I wasn't into politics. i the first baroness I'd ever met. It wasn't my world. And it's quite sort of scary. But I thought I'd ask God how I could use this obvious privilege of speaking in the House of Lords. And the message came very clearly. It's a wonderful place to be a voice for those who don't have voices or people whose voices are not heard. So that's how I try to use my role in the House of Lords.
0: Did the call come out of the blue?
1: The call to the peerage? Mm. Absolutely, I'm still in my cupboard the shop now. <laughs> <laughs> Completely out of the blue. Yes, sir. I mean, it was not in that world, I'd never met Baroness, but it, of course it's a privilege and I offered it to God.
0: And you've done a whole bunch of different things in the House of Lords, including holding some interesting titles, you've been Deputy Speaker. You have been Baroness-in-waiting to Queen Elizabeth. Tell me Mm. about that.
1: Well, that's an amazing privilege. Uh, It goes to junior members of the House of Lords and you have a series and you have your own sort of um, slot in the timetable. And while you're doing it, you are actually representing Her Majesty. So um, it's quite frightening. But I was very lucky that the week before I did it, uh, when my colleagues did it, and he was at a very high level service in Westminster Abbey. And he marched in as you would as if it was the queen and went and you sit actually in the queen's actual seat. And he stood up and the music went on and on. He was sitting up for a long time and on. And then suddenly a large piece of paper was stuck in front of his face saying, sit down. So at least I knew to sit down.
0: <laughs> Always safer to learn from other people's mistakes, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> a mucky business with Tim Farron. We're speaking with Baroness Caroline Cox, a member of the House of Lords and a human rights campaigner. Caroline, let's talk about that. What what drives you to tackle human rights issues around the world?
1: Well, we have a biblical mandate, don't we? To heal the sick, feed the hungry, and speak for the oppressed. And I think that's where I try to use my role in the House of Lords and the small uh, NGO, which I established called Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust or HEART. And we're very small, but we work with local partners on their front lines of faith and freedom. And they are amazing, inspiring, faithful, resourceful, resilient people. So the remit is to provide aid and advocacy for people whose voices are not being heard. And mm. as we work with local partners, we provide some aid, but they're incredibly resilient and resourceful and they multiply the we of them in ways which literally transform their communities. So we aid and advocacy, we try to speak for them, but one of the things that makes me most angry is that some of the people we're working with on front lines of faith um, are suffering horrendously, but the government doesn't acknowledge it. We don't hear about them. And I think the public doesn't know about them. I think Christians, many don't know about them because it's not broadcast. For example, in Nigeria, thousands of Christians have been killed, I mean, literally thousands. And some Muslims who won't convert to the uh, sort of hardline fascist ideology or not fascist Islamist ideology mm-hmm. or ISIS or the B- 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 Haram, etc. Um, but thousands killed. And do we ever see it in the papers? No. Mm-hmm. Um, in Armenia and the little Armenian I enclave of Nagorno Karabakh uh, and Azerbaijan, I've been there 90 times, I think, um, but there. It was recently, a war in which Azerbaijan unleashed huge military offensives against the Armenians in the corner of Karabakh, and they committed the most appalling crimes against humanity, or war crimes. Uh, for example, they used cluster bombs, and that's against the law. But personal things: they took photographs. They took a, a soldier whom they captured. They took his photograph, and then they talked to him horrendously and possibly beheaded him, filmed all that and sent it back to their families. And one lady I met in Armenia just said, I've lost my husband, but I dare not look at my phone. But mm-hmm. there's a, there was a ceasefire agreement that both sides would release the prisoners of war. Armenia released the prisoners of war they were holding, Azerbaijan is still holding on to the prisoners of war and maltreating them appallingly. And it really could become another genocide. I was in Armenia very recently, and Azerbaijan is encroaching across the border into Armenia itself, um, but with impunity.
0: And so you've given us a real insight there of some of the issues that you choose or really are put in front of you. Um, When you say governments are often reluctant to accept um, that there is a problem, um, do you sometimes mean our own government Um, or, um, or the governments on the ground in those other countries or a bit of both?
1: Uh, Or I mean, I obviously address our government Mm. and uh, challenge that our government very powerfully, at least I wish I could do it powerfully, very strongly, very passionately. Mm. And a lot of members uh, of the house, both houses, agree with what we're concerned about, but Mm. the government is totally immune, and it hasn't changed its stance at all on Nigeria um, and other countries where people are suffering, and their suffering is not broadcast. And why do you think that is? Um, I'll tell you something. It's been on the on the floor of the house, so it's in the public domain. Mm. But there was an earlier war in the Corner karabakh unleashed by Azerbaijan, way back in the early 1990s. Mm. And I'd seen children shredded by cluster bombs. Horrible. I took photographs, I brought this back, and I asked a, scene, a senior person in the Foreign Office. I won't mention the name because it was unofficial briefing but I showed the pictures of the children traded by cluster bombs. And I said, look, this is against international law. Will the British government make representations to the government of Azerbaijan to stop dropping cluster bombs on children? Mm. It's mm. against the law. The reply, no country has an interest in other countries, only interests. We have oil interests in Azerbaijan. Good morning. Wow. And I think that underpins that sort of interests as a real priority underpins a lot of the policies to the various countries who are suffering today.
0: And that's deeply concerning, isn't it? When you think that, that appalling things are happening and that you know, often Western governments will be motivated only to get involved if they think there's something in it for them. Um, and, uh, and so important that people who are driven by um, that kind of Christian compulsion to love our neighbor who we've never met um, uh, that we do get engaged and why doing what you do and supporting what you do is so important. So HART, H-A-R-T, Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust for listeners to look that up. And thank you very much for what you you do with that organisation. Look, sometimes you or the uh, partners that you work with will have to sit down, therefore, with some, let's put it bluntly, some pretty grotty people people who've been described as war criminals in some circumstances, to try to improve the lot of some people. Um, So obviously one of the things that puts some Christians off getting involved and interested in politics is the idea that you've got to compromise and get your hands dirty. Um, How would you explain um, why it's right, because I'm convinced it is, that you do sit down with such people?
1: Well, you you have to sit down to try to achieve the objective of peace and justice. We don't usually sit down with the governments of the ones who are doing the killings because uh, that would compromise our work with the people whom we support and serve, uh, the people on the front lines of faith and freedom. But we do challenge the British government. People ask me how I am. I say, I'm fighting fit because there is a lot of challenging and a lot of fighting to do. Mm -hmm. And sometimes with very little result, which is very tragic. It's a double twist of the knife. You see the suffering, and then you come back, and not, this isn't in every case, but in too many cases, uh, we have a government that does not acknowledge or respond to pos- it, probably,
0: possibly, appropriately. Mm. I mean, is there a, is there a, a moment, have you, have you ever felt yourself to be in peril when you've been in difficult places? Of course.
1: Under, under fire, yes, many times, in Sudan, South Sudan, in Armenia, in Nagorno karabakh um, et cetera. Yes, but he goes with, you know, if you're going to visit people on the front lines of faith and freedom, you're obviously going to go in those circumstances, but they're the real heroes and heroines. We come and go, which would a, a risk to it, but they live there and they make amazing changes for their communities, which you couldn't imagine.
0: Well, thank you for what you do. Um, You will soon mark 40 years in the Lords. What keeps you going?
1: The pain gives you the passion and the passion gives you the energy.
0: The pain being just realizing the incredible injustice and worse that people suffer.
1: And the real suffering that we see. You know, Mm. people are deliberately slaughtered, um, homes burned, people burned alive in their homes. We saw that in Abyei, land between Sudan and South Sudan last year. You see unbelievable suffering. But yeah. people with great dignity and are so grateful we're there and are so grateful we tell their story.
0: Well, Caroline, we've, we've tried to tell some of your story uh, on the show today. Uh, I'm sure we've not done, done as much justice as we might have done because there's a lot to fit in in a few minutes. But we are massively grateful to you and for you and for what you continue to do. And thank you for encouraging us.
1: Well, thank you for letting me be their voice today.
0: Thank you. each week we answer a question from you the listener about how christianity and politics can work together maybe you're thinking through a particular issue or you're not sure why people disagree on a certain policy if you've got a question we'd love it if you wrote it in by email to at premier.org.uk now this week we've got a question from alistair
2: Uh, hello tim Uh, my name is uh, alistair watkins i do understand all the concern at the loss of life in the english channel and our government acceptance of the fact that many of these people are genuine refugees with a well-founded fear of persecution if returned to the country of origin, usually Islamic. I struggle though with the almost abandonment of Christians under persecution all over the Middle East. Well-documented, well-known, and the UK government and most of the Western governments remain silent. There are other ways of rescue as well as the UK lifeboat or Coast Guard and I'm talking about diplomatic from here to there. So what is the actual action and representation being actioned by the UK on this issue?
0: Well thank you Alistair. I think it's a reminder the really important question you've asked as to how even a very well-intentioned and deliberately balanced media can still distort things by accident because there's all this focus on all these people crossing the channel. And there is an increase in number of people crossing the channel in those dangerous circumstances. Actually, the number of migrants crossing the Channel or coming to the United Kingdom is down. They're not coming by the Channel Tunnel. They're not coming by ferries. They are instead coming by even more dangerous routes because those two former routes are being closed off because of COVID and better security. So you'd think that we were being overwhelmed, in inverted commas, and we're not. The people who have a problem are the refugees, not our country. But you asked rightly about why are Christians who are persecuted, particularly in the Middle East, not in the news mall? Um, and the answer is potentially for a couple of reasons. But one of them, I think, is that Western government, Western democracies still view the church, Christianity, as a powerful force, um, as an establishment um thing and therefore can't quite get around their head or get their heads round the fact that Christians can be persecuted too. It's wrong to think that we're not. It's also the fact that lots of other groups in societies where Christians are persecuted are also persecuted. And it's a reminder why it's important to engage with politicians. we just heard Caroline Cox and the important messages that she tries to deploy and how frustrating it can often be for her to get governments of all colours to take Uh, the persecution of Christians overseas seriously so I'd say to you Alistair and everybody else listening don't give up keep persuading your member of parliament this matters and to encourage ministers to engage directly. If you have a question for Tim email farron at premier.org.uk Well we've come to the end of our show again and I'm really grateful to you for staying with us let's finish together praying. Lord, we want to thank you for Caroline Cox. We want to thank you for her service in the Lord's over nearly 40 years. And we want to hold up to you all those people who were uh, so important to her, people who are Christians around the world who are persecuted. We pray that you give strength to her and the Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust as they seek to encourage ministers and others in higher position to make sure that the plight of persecuted Christians uh, is at the top of the agenda and that those people receive the help that they desperately need. Lord, we also want to lift up to you the new uh, strain of the COVID virus known as Omicron. Uh, We don't know how serious it is yet. We put it in your hands and we pray, Lord, that you would, if it is your will, uh, turn Omicron away, that you would ensure that it's not a serious strain and that it will not cause suffering or misery, that you would uh, in your power uh, overcome it and turn it around. But Lord, whatever happens, I pray that you would use this time to draw draw Christians, to put their trust in the one, the only one uh, in whom they can have secure trust. And I pray for those who are not yet Christians that you would use this time of ongoing uncertainty to help them to question whether the things that they put their faith in really are the ultimate things. And indeed, instead, draw them to put their trust in the one thing in whom people can have absolute confidence, uh, you, Lord Jesus, and your death for us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, don't forget that you can find this show on all podcast providers. So please do subscribe, comment and like it so that more people can find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening.